0: Good morning. Welcome to Life Church. As Dustin said, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And man, I am so excited to be able to continue this series, Christmas at the Movies. Uh, my family, one of our traditions that we've created over the last several years, is that the weeks leading up to Christmas, four weeks out, we we take one movie, we watch it, we kind of you know have a big movie night and snacks and all that kind of stuff. And one of the movies uh, is Elf. The other one's Home Alone. Uh, We watch The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And we watch a a movie called The Star. Very underrated, by the way. Very good movie. Uh, But this is one of our favorites in our family is Elf. And and, and I think it's because it's probably... I, I love movie quotes. I love show quotes. In fact, I get made fun of on staff because they say I always have like a movie quote for something. And I'm noticing that half my movie references nobody on staff gets anymore because there's starting to become a bigger age gap. And so my 90s comedy movies, you know, like no one understands anymore. But I made a Wayne's World reference recently and it went just way over everyone's head. But uh, Elf is one of those movies that's probably the most quoted movie in my house, all year round. I mean, let me give you some of our favorite quotes. I actually had to whittle this list down a little bit. But he said it in that one, but I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite, and we we like that one. Or answering the phone with simply saying, Buddy the elf, what's your favorite color? Uh, (laughs) If somebody in our family is having a bad day, we have two quotes that we'll throw out there. It's either, well, he's an angry elf, Either that one, or does somebody need a hug, which always cheers them up so much when they're having a bad day and you say that, or you stink, you smell like beef and cheese, you don't smell like Santa, it's a good one to throw out there, or is there sugar in syrup? Then yes, that's, that's a good one. Um, I said this to one of my kids yesterday. It sounds like we're really mean in my family, it's not, it's just a way to kind of break the ice, but I said to one of my kids, you sit on a throne of lies, that's from the movie. <laughs> And because I have three little boys, uh, anytime there's a loud burp, it's always followed by the line, did you hear that? Uh, love the movie Elf, and, and probably what I love about the movie more than anything is it's, it's just entertaining because he has such a positive outlook on life. No matter what he's going through, I mean, you saw it there in that clip, no matter how desperate the situation is, he's always positive. He's always looking at the glass as being half full, no matter what. And as Christ followers, we've been called to live with a a similar perspective. It's different. I mean, his is more of an emotional happiness. Uh, uh, But I want to talk to you today about the joy that we as Christ followers have been called to have and is available to each and every one of us. It's not just something that we have to do. It's something that God fills us with. In fact, John chapter fifteen, uh, verse eleven, it says, "I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy." Yes, your joy will overflow. That's what the life of a Christ follower should look like. And so today, uh, I'm not naive. I understand that that many of us, myself included, go through seasons where having joy is more difficult. Uh, where joy can be put to its test. I know there's seasons where it's not on the mountaintop. I know there's seasons where maybe there's an illness and it's just constant. There's just always a reminder of this illness. Or maybe there's a relational problem. Maybe your marriage is going through a difficult season. And it's just joy seems much more difficult in those times. But joy is something that is not contingent upon our circumstance. And if we look at the very first Christmas story, uh, I think we see just a tremendous example of what joy really looks like. Uh, it's, it's one of the angles of the Christmas story. You know, the, the, the story is told from many different perspectives. But I want to look at the perspective of Mary. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up uh, to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to get there in a few minutes, but like anything, I think there's always context that's needed. I think Christmas is one of those times that you've heard the story maybe your entire life, uh, but sometimes you hear or you interpret sometimes a sanitized version of the Christmas story where it's all nice and neat, but the Christmas story was anything but that. The Christmas story was messy. The Christmas story was not a glass-half-full situation. In fact, it was a very desperate situation. Situation. Now just to give a little context, the, the Roman Empire, which is where Mary would have grown up in her entire life, the Roman Empire was the largest, richest, and most powerful empire in the history of the world. Uh, it was ruled by the Emperor Caesar Augustus, which you know that name in the Christmas story, it's referenced. But Caesar Augustus was a dictator. I mean, Caesar Augustus uh, was not a good guy. He was somebody who wanted to make life of the citizens just terrible. I mean he he taxed them at a rate of 80 to 90%. Kind of looks makes our tax rate look pretty good in comparison. You know, 80 to 90% of the people were taxed. So there was just a few wealthy people at the very top. Caesar was one of them. Had palaces built all over for him and everything, you know, he lived it up, but then almost everybody else was extremely poor and desperate. That's the kind of environment that Mary grew up in. Caesar had one goal, it was to get more power, and so he would take more land, he would take more resources, that's how you got more power. In fact, uh, historians say that he took over 500 prisoners per day on average, and many times would have those prisoners publicly executed just purely for entertainment. You know, the gladiator games. Caesar claimed to be the son of God. That kind of made it a little more difficult being in the Roman Empire because many of the people bought into the fact that he was the son of God. And so when, they, when he asks for 80 to 90% of tax, they're kind of like, well, this is the son of God. We're just supposed to blindly follow because that he's saying he's the son of God. And so it became a very uh, dictatorial type of an environment he had a specific disdain for the Jewish people. Now, the Roman Empire was a huge area, but there was one area called Judea that most of the Jews lived in, and that's where he put uh, King Herod. So he had kind of, you know, he had an empire. He, he, you know, think of it, he's the president, and then he has all these states where there's governors. Herod was the governor, or the, the, the king, really, of Judea. And King Herod wasn't any better. King Herod was ruthless. King Herod wanted to make the life of a Jew living in Judea a living hell. I mean, that's he—he he did not like the Jewish people, and he would tax them at another thirty to fifty percent of the, you know, the the leftovers. So they're already taxed, you know, up to here, and now he taxes them even more. Uh, it's it's believed that Herod, at one point, historians say that he brought five hundred thousand Jews into a colosseum, locked the doors. And said, on the day that I die, I I want everybody in this Colosseum to be killed because I want there to be mourning on the day of my death. That's the kind of person Herod was. He had 11 wives and 43 children. He, at one point, killed one of his wives and killed three of his sons because he suspected they might be plotting against him. Didn't really have any proof, but just kind of had this suspicion. And he had them executed. He had 18,000 men build him a temple, Uh, and historians still don't know how some of these stones were moving into place. I mean, there's not even modern equipment that could handle some of the stones that were put into place, and he had this elaborate palace. I mean, it was just, he was living it up, and everyone else was poor. It did not look good for God's people at the very first Christmas. In fact, Mary, this is all she would have ever known, was this type of environment just poor and downtrodden and abused. The glass was not half full. Most people would have not even seen hardly anything in the glass whatsoever. And this is where we pick up the Christmas story. An angel shows up to, historians say, probably a 13-year-old girl, maybe a little bit older, but somewhere right in that age. A 13-year-old Jewish girl named Mary. And the angel tells Mary that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. Now, I would have had a lot of questions in, in that moment. I mean, I think any of us would have been like, what are you talking about? And Mary has just a couple of questions, but she moves quickly. She moves quickly past those questions. And the Bible says that she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. In other words, get on with it. Let's, we're, yes, I agree. Whatever you want me to say, I'm, I'm, I'm willing, I'm w- able, I'm ready Mary represents a nation who is asking the question, God, where are you? I mean, it had been 400 years since the prophet Malachi. That's the last time there was any prophet of God, that there was any any word from God whatsoever. It had been a long time, and they're asking, God, where are you? The Jews were starting to get desperate. Judaism was starting to fizzle out. And they were very suppressed by the Roman Empire. But finally... God speaks to this 13-year-old girl. And Mary, upon learning about being pregnant with the Son of God, she sings a song that we're going to read today. And it's called by, by theologians, they call it the Magnificat. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46, it's going to be on the screen as well. But just look at, in the middle of a desperate situation, the joy that comes out from Mary. She says this, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Despite what Mary sees, despite what's going on around her, she's overjoyed by God's faithfulness. She doesn't wait until the end of the story. She doesn't wait until Jesus is born and eventually you know, dies on the cross and becomes the savior of the world. She doesn't wait for all of those things. She just simply says, God, I, I, I believe you are who you say you are. And if you say that this is the Son of God, then this is the Son of God and I'm overjoyed as a result. She doesn't need a ton of proof. She simply knows the character of who God is. There's many things that we can learn from, from this song, but I, I just want to point out two of them. If you're taking notes today, the first one is simply this. Life doesn't have to be perfect to be joyful. Life doesn't have to be perfect to be joyful. Have you ever had your circumstances change quickly? Like, you go from things are really good to things are really bad, like in a few minutes, um, I, uh I'm going to let you in on a little bit of my misery today. Uh, I, I, I grew up on the other side of the Mississippi River, and so my sports allegiances uh, when it comes to football and any sport, but when it comes to football, uh, is not with the Green Bay Packers. And I, I don't lead with that often because I, I want you to like me, uh, but I grew up a Minnesota Vikings fan, and so I, I'm not here to gloat today. I'm here to let you in on how miserable it's been. So you're going to enjoy this. Uh, Five years ago, and I I see a couple of Vikings fans out here. That that, uh, Ryan and Tim, you can you can be with me on this today. This is cathartic for me, you know, just to kind of get this out. Uh, But. Five years ago, the Vikings had just come off of one of the greatest games of all time. If you remember it, it it's been dubbed as the Minneapolis Miracle. It was a crazy game. Anyway, so they're going to the NFC Championship game. And the very next day, uh, my wife and I are going to a warm destination in the middle of January without the kids. So I'm like, I got NFC Championship game. We're going on vacation. This is awesome. This is a great week. The game started and they go up 7-0. And I'm like, we're going to the Super Bowl. I mean, I, I've said that out loud at that point, right? And which, I'm so, it's probably my fault, Tim. <laughs> Things turned quickly. They turned real quick. In fact, the Eagles went up 21-7 to seven in the blink of an eye And then things started unraveling in my life, and it wasn't just the game. I I get a text message at that point, in in that moment, they're down 21-7, that says, your flight for tomorrow morning has been canceled. (laughs) Like, what do you mean? Like, delayed is, did you use the wrong word? Uh, Canceled. So I'm like, uh, what do I do? I had never had that happen, like, last minute like that, so I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, and and then I uh, right after that, like literally, like three minutes later, I get a phone call from the Milwaukee Police Department. I think it was twenty eight seven now. I'm still trying to keep one eye here. I'm just things are melting down for me. And the Milwaukee Police Department s- tells me we had just taken on the Milwaukee campus like days before that, and they say, "Hey, your alarm system's going off, and do you know the code." Uh, otherwise we're gonna have to bust in and see if it, like, what's going on. And I'm like, I don't know the code. This is a bad time. Like, I'm trying to figure it out, so I'm trying to text other people, try to find the code. I can't figure it out. Then, in the same moment, this is all in the span of 10 minutes, I get a text from somebody who is extremely mad at me. And I won't even go into all the details. They had their facts messed up on something, but they thought it was my fault, and so they're going, like, like, all caps type text to me, you know, type of a deal. And long story short... Things went from the mountaintop to the valley in 10 minutes. I mean, it, it was a bad 10-minute stretch. Uh, our circumstances can change on a dime. They can change so quickly. Have you ever gotten that phone call that just changes things in a moment? You've gotten that report. You've gotten that that information, that letter in the mail, whatever it might be, and your circumstances change because your circumstances are fleeting. Our joy can never be connected to our circumstances. We all are going to have what I'd call joy robbers, and sometimes they're, they're small things. Sometimes it might be, you know, a, a, a nagging cold that just won't go away. That's just a small joy robber, or sometimes it's an unexpected bill. I got one of those this week that I'm like, where did this come from? It's, it's just a bit of a joy robber. Sometimes it's, it's more serious things. It's significant. It's financial stress, it's job loss, it's illness, it's a death in the family. But what defines us as Christ followers is how we respond in those moments. And I believe you see somebody, their true color, so to speak, when facing adversity. And Mary is put in one of those situations where she's facing adversity. And her response is, Starting in verse 46, I'm going to reread part of this. She says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The circumstances of Mary's life were far from perfect. I mean, aside from the the Roman Empire part of it that we just talked about, she's also a teenage girl, supposed to be married, and she now has to explain this to Joseph. She has to explain this to her family. She has to explain this to society. How are you pregnant? You're not married. I mean, there's a lot going on, and, and we could spend an entire message just talking about those circumstances. But even in the middle of that, she found joy. It's because joy is, is far greater than happiness. I mean, it, we laugh a little bit at the movie Elf, but I, I, I see a lot of that as, as external happiness. It's based on circumstances. Happiness is external, but joy is internal. See, you, you, you can fake happiness, but you can't fake joy. And there's a lot of people that... You know them well, maybe you're guilty of this sometime, that think, if I can make the external circumstances just right, everything internally will be great. If I can have the right house, if I can drive the right car, if I can get the perfect family picture, you know, whatever it may, whatever that looks like for you, if I can have everything externally all good, everything internal will be just fine too, and it doesn't work that way. See, happiness is temporal, but joy is eternal. Happiness is here today, gone tomorrow. It's You know, it's... It's the life of a Vikings fan. It's up and down and up and down. But joy is way beyond circumstance. See, the Bible says it rains on the just and, and the unjust. So you're going to have difficult circumstances, the Bible says. But joy is choosing to have a confidence in God even in the middle of that. Galatians 5.22 In in 23, Paul writes this. He says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control." Now, I remember learning this as a kid. We even sang a song about that verse, and I remember seeing it as a to-do list. I'm a like, admittedly, I'm a to-do list guy. I have a to-do list on my day off. You know, like I'm that kind of guy. I just it just keeps me organized. It just keeps me focused. I love to-do lists, but I always read that verse as a to-do list. Like, I'm supposed to have these things. I need to have joy. I need to have peace. I need to have patience. I need to be more self control I need to have humility. I need, I need to do these things. And, man, I'm going to muster up energy. I'm going to do these things. And they were never meant to be a to-do list. It was meant to be a result list that if the Spirit of God is in you, and if the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in you, then you will display these things. These things will be an overflow of the Spirit of God in you. So joy is not something that you do. Joy is something that's inside of you. Joy is something that is a fruit of the Spirit. We can have joy regardless of our circumstance because it's founded upon who God is. The second thing if you're taking notes, and, and this is very much connected to the first point, but maybe a little different. True joy comes from knowing him. True joy comes from knowing him. See, in the movie Elf, that the clip that we just watched, he can't contain his excitement. You know, he, he finds out that Santa's coming at 10 a.m., and he just loses it. it and he's trying to, to explain I know him, not the fake mall Santas, I know the real Santa, like he, he can't get this through to the, to the manager there, that I really know Santa. In the life of a Christ follower, uh, our joy is, is founded upon our knowledge of who God is, knowing who the real God is, not, not these external things, not these other, you know, you know, there's a lot of different things that are claimed to be God, but I know the true God. God. Mary overflows with joy in a song of praise about what God has done for his people. She says starting in verse verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, everything that Mary mentions there, and she's, I think she's talking about some specific things. I mean, she mentions Abraham, but she you know, is likely talking a little bit about the, the Israelites being rescued from Egypt out of slavery. She's referencing things that have happened over a 1,000 years ago. I mean, Abraham, is, that's probably 1,600 years ago. This, these aren't th- I mean, sometimes when we read the Bible, we think of it all of it happening in a short period of time. It's spread out over thousands of years, and Mary is hinging her faith of who God is Based on things that have happened a long time ago. These aren't, hey, you know, I remember last year when you showed up in this great way. She's not talking about things that happened recently. She's talking about things that happened a long time ago. Yet she's overjoyed by the faithfulness of God. This is because she knows who God is. She's rejoicing in the character of God. She's not necessarily rejoicing in what God has done for her lately. She's rejoicing in who God is. She says that God is merciful. God scatters the proud. He fills the hungry with good things. He upholds his promises. That's the kind of God that she serves, and because of that, she can have joy. And I think it's also the reason why she doesn't ask a lot of questions. And I'm not saying that questions are bad, but it's shocking when you look at the story, the, the, the Christmas story. The lack of questions that Mary has, you know? Like, I would have a million questions in that moment. Like, what are we talking about here? She doesn't ask a lot of questions because she knows the character of God. She trusts God. See, I I think I would have asked the question, why, a whole lot more than Mary does. I, I think I would have asked, why haven't you spoken for 400 years? Why did you choose to speak now? Or, or why, did you, why have you allowed Caesar to oppress us like this? Why have you allowed this to happen for so long? Or why would you choose me to birth the Son of God? Like, why, what's special about me? Like, why me? But Mary doesn't ask those questions. Mary has a confidence in who God is. In fact, I, I believe that asking the question why, I would say this, dwelling on the question why, can be something that robs you of joy spending a lot of time just dwelling on why. Why, you know, why did the car break down? Why, why did dad have to get cancer? Why did this have to happen? Why did I have to go through this? Why would you allow this to happen? I believe that can be an absolute joy, Robert. I'm not saying that God is off-put by our questions, but there's a far better question for us as Christ followers to ask, and it's the question, what? God, what are you trying to do through this circumstance. God what are you trying to teach me. Through this circumstance. God what kind of glory are you going to get. As a result of this situation. Paul the apostle was a, a very good. At getting past the question of why. Uh, and, and he got to the question of what quite often. But he had a, a, a perspective in any situation. Um, that I think is, is something for us to grab a hold of today. It's a, one example is in Second Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse 16. These are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, "Therefore we do not lose heart. though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, when I read that, uh, I have some questions for Paul, <laughs> because he he says that his suffering is light and momentary. And if you read through scripture, Paul's affliction was anything but light and momentary. I mean, it, it, he he suffered... As much as anybody, I mean, he he had a lot of things going against him. He was shipwrecked three times. He was flogged, beaten, stoned, imprisoned. In fact, he wrote many of the New Testament letters from a prison cell. Uh, They tried to kill him multiple times. He was at sea for days. He was cold, naked, hungry. I mean, you go down the list, this guy has endured it all. But he says his affliction is light. Then he also says his affliction is momentary. It's, it's here today, gone tomorrow, it's not that big of a deal. That's kind of what he's saying. And, but his affliction lasted until he took his very last breath. He was persecuted all the way till the end. So I would read that and say, Paul, your, your, your affliction's not light and momentary. But he says it, it is in comparison, in view of, in comparison to eternity. Paul is saying... That compared to eternity, his suffering is inconsequential. And he says that we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He has a confidence in God that outweighs his circumstances. His confidence in God outweighs any questions that he may have. And again, I'm not saying questions are bad, but he has a confidence in who God is. What would happen if we shifted our focus from the, the temporary to the eternal, from our circumstance to the character of God? Earlier in the service, the band played a song, uh, It Is Well, and it's it's based on the original hymn, It Is Well. And many of you know this story. In fact, I've even shared this before. But if you know the background of that song, and I've asked the band to uh, I saw that they were singing, and I'm like, "Hey, let's do that again at the end because it just really ties in with with what we're talking about today." But that story of that hymn being written is pretty astounding. Uh, it, it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford, who was a wealthy uh, attorney from Chicago, and he had uh, he had actually he had a, a son and four daughters and a wife, and one of his sons passed away, and so he. Uh, he and his family were were mourning and and they said let's let's take a trip we just need to get out and so they they were out they were they were helping dl moody in his evangelism crusades around europe and so he they went with him to europe but horatio spafford he had to attend to some business back in chicago and so he sent his four daughters and his wife ahead and said i'll meet you there and so they are on their way there and and, and Shortly after that, he gets a telegram that says, Saved alone from his wife. He comes to find out that the ship they were on had gone down in the Atlantic Ocean and his four daughters drowned that day and his wife was saved. And so he quickly gets to board a ship and, and, and head that way because he wants to be with his, his grieving wife. And as he's passing through the Atlantic Ocean as he's going through the area, the general area that their ship would have went down, it's in that moment that he wrote the song, It Is Well. And the lyrics, when you have that perspective, are are astounding because it speaks about the joy that we have regardless of circumstance. He says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot you have taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. That's the same kind of joy that Mary had. It's the same kind of joy that Paul had. And it's the same kind of joy that each and every one of us can have. In fact, the Bible declares that we should have it as Christ's followers. That our joy may overflow. That's what we've been called to. And today I know there, there may be people in this room that, man, it just feels like rough season. And it is hard to have joy right now and my encouragement to you would not be that you try to have joy because that is not what joy looks like but that you would say God that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit God that you would be with me today God that you would renew in me what you started at salvation that I, I, I know everyone's on a different journey as far as what that looks like and there's different reasons for why you may be in the the place that you are, but I do know this, that God goes with us and goes before us and that our joy is tethered to him and him alone. And so I just wanna pray in this moment and then the band's gonna play and sing and as they do, I I would just encourage you to just take a moment and maybe it's right here before you leave here today, just saying, God, I, I put my faith and my hope and my trust in you today. And maybe it's, you you did that years ago, but it's been a long time since you've really had that type of interaction with God. Or maybe you just need to be reminded today that God still is on the throne and that we can have joy regardless of circumstance. And so would you pray with me today? God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your character. Thank you that the the same God who showed up to Mary 2,000 years ago is the same God who sits on the throne today and that regardless of what we may be walking through today that you go with us that God that we know that having you in our lives is what gives us joy nothing else can so I pray right now for the family that may be grieving the loss of a loved one God, that the holidays can sometimes be a difficult season. God, I pray that your joy would be unexplainable. Your word says that you give us a peace that passes all understanding. It's not something we can wrap our minds around. God, I pray for the family that may be just going through a difficult marriage situation, God. I pray that your peace would reign and rule their heart today. God, we place our hope and our faith and our trust in you in you alone. And we thank you for the peace. We thank you for the joy that you give each and every one of us. We thank you, God. Thank you for your faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen.